You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we will continue our series together looking at the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel... And it's immeasurable, immeasurable, immeasurable worth to us as God's people. I uh, shared with you last week uh, that this was going to be a challenging series and that it is uh, to remind us that the gospel is not something that we just should look simply at the surface of, that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and was raised to life again and is coming again. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected and coming again is the gospel. And yet it is so much deeper than that. There's so much more that God is doing. The, the implications of what God has done through those things are, are more immeasurable than we could ever imagine, Ephesians tells us. And so we come to the Gospel here in Ephesians and it is a call to us to go deeper and to not just accept the, the, the uh, elementary things of the Gospel, but to learn who God is and what God has done in our lives. And the question that we looked at last week is really fundamental. The question of what is the purpose of the gospel? What is, what is God's overarching purpose in what He's doing by, by sending Jesus and saving for Himself a people? What is God's big goal? And the answer must be, as you look at Ephesians 1, the answer can only be His glory. That the gospel is about God, ultimately doing things to bring glory and honor to His name. That also includes our benefit, praise the Lord. It includes our good, that that God working for His glory is also working for our good, that, that we become the beneficiaries of this salvation. And yet, ultimately, it is for Him. So the question then remains, or the question that we need to ask over the next couple of weeks what really is part three, part two, three, and four of last week's message in these first 14 verses, the question that we need to ask is this. What is it that God is actually doing for the praise of His glory? What is it in Jesus' sacrifice for us that, that God is doing for the praise of His glory? What are those details of what God is doing that is more than we could ever think or imagine. There is three very straightforward, simple answers to that question in this passage that will make up the next three weeks. A list of things that are the go deeper kind of topics for the gospel. That is, namely, number one, his election. Included in that, Paul adds his adoption Also, his redemption, so election, redemption, and if you like, the last one, his seal or security. 
in these three things, God is acting on behalf of His people for the sake of His glory. And I want to just go ahead and warn you right up front that this first one is right where we dive off into the deep end of the salvation pool. Right off into the deep end. And so my prayer this week for myself, and I want to encourage you to pray for me as well, is that I would just simply be faithful to what the Bible really says. That we would see what is, what is really here. And with that, it's going to take us some pretty heavy legwork. And so I want to just encourage you to hang with me. Um, and it may take a little longer to do that this morning. Uh, so in advance, I apologize to our nursery workers. Uh, but we're going to walk through this, and I think that it's important that we look at it together systematically for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of His truth in your heart and in mine. So this morning, the message is entitled, Chosen to the Praise of His Glory. If you have found your place, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read the same passage we read last week, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for the adoption or for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, with which, uh, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Lord, as we approach Your Word this morning, I am intimately aware that there are things in this passage that Christians have debated since the third century at least, things that we want in good faith to understand from your word and to teach rightly. And so, God, we have, like the Bereans, 
search the Word to determine if these things are true. And yet it seems that throughout the pages of church history, we cannot and have not come to agreement over these things. And I wonder, Lord, if perhaps this very morning, if we were never meant to resolve the tension. I wonder if, Lord, as we come to Your Word, there are things that You teach us, both in one side of things and the other side of things that may seem like they are at odds with one another, though they are at perfect, imperfect harmony. And yet we are supposed to struggle with them and wrestle through them and ultimately believe by faith what Your Word teaches and only what Your Word teaches, even if it doesn't fill all of the boxes that we desire to check off. And so I pray that if that is the case, Lord, You would guide us and You would teach us what is really here, regardless of what we may come to. And I pray that Your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe whatever it is that You intend to teach us. God, may we be patient. May we be faithful to examine Your words and examine Your Word as You have called us to. And Lord, I pray that You would guard me as Your teacher from straying into error. God, that You would keep us all in Your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, having read Ephesians 1 um, last week, this week, uh, no doubt some of you in this room are already thinking within the, the framework of your own theological structure. Some of you, as you've read Ephesians 1 or you've thought through what is, what is the pastor going to say about these things in Ephesians 1, you've already begun to think through them in terms of presuppositions or theological assumptions that you bring to the text. And I want to just caution us this morning, both for me and for you, that that is the wrong way to approach the Bible. We do not approach the Bible through a set of theological assumptions. Our theology does not inform the Bible, but rather the Bible informs our theology. And so I want to just caution us, as I did last week, just bring us back to this same point as we were last week, to, to just, cause, just call us to... Lay aside all of our assumptions, all of our presuppositions, and simply approach the Bible for what it really says. There are others of you in this room that as we read Ephesians 1, and as I say those things, even in your minds, it it may be something that is new and something that you've never come across before. Some of the ideas and some of the truths that we see in this passage. And I want to just urge you, and caution you not to fall off into the deep end of the theological pool, so to speak, and to drown in all of the things that you do not understand. The Bible was written in a way that children can understand what God intends for us to understand, and yet we can never plumb the depths of those very simple truths. And so if you find yourself in that position this morning, you have no idea what we're talking about, I I, I would say to you that you are at an advantage this morning. As we approach this text, you are at an advantage to see what is really here without thinking through it in terms of filters or ideas or systems. And so may we all come to it in that same way this morning. It seems best 
as we approach this passage to tackle it in an inductive manner. Normally, when you come to places in the New Testament and we're learning about what God has to say to us, normally it would be deductive in its style. And what I mean by that is this. I, as your pastor, would tell you right up front what the passage is teaching and then together we would walk through the passage and see that the passage actually is teaching that and then we would come on the back side of it and call to response. But in this passage, I think that it's best for us to reverse that process, to look at the passage and ask, not, not tell what it teaches, but rather ask God's Word, what are you teaching us? In the same way that I would come to this passage in my own study, I want to bring it to you this morning as we look at the passage. And we're going to focus mainly on verses 3 through 6, verses 3 through 6 together on this one major idea that we see in the passage, and that is God's election. Before we get there, we do need to lay a couple of ground rules in order to understand what is being said here. And I think that they're helpful and they'll guide us as we really unpack Paul's message and ultimately God's message to us. Two things to state right up front. Number one, the gospel is God's eternal plan to save people. The gospel is God's eternal plan to save people. So just as these three places in Scripture we talked about last week find their end at a common place, a common ending point, that is the praise of God's glory, the same way that there is a common ending point, there is a common beginning point, the eternal plan of God. So notice with me verse 4. The Bible says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's an eternal kind of statement. It didn't just happen just now or last week or 20 years ago. It happened before the very foundation of the world. It's an eternal plan. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. And we'll look at the word predestined more in a moment, but it is to plan beforehand. Verse 9, according to the purpose of his, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, according to the purpose, setting, he set it forth, it, it happened beforehand. He set it forth as a plan that it would come to fruition in the fullness of time. And verse 11, he says that having predestined us according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Planned it beforehand by His will to be carried out. The Gospel is God's eternal plan to save His people. So, foundational truth. And we must embrace that from God's Word before we'll ever wrap our minds around what is being said here. Secondly, the Gospel is God's gracious act to bless His people. And this is foundational. These truths that we'll read in this passage are not curses. They are not intended to be a burden for us this morning. They are intended to be a blessing. And why is it that I say that? By the way, it's hugely important, but you'll see it there in verse 3. Three different times. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 is not a burden for the church to, to fight over over the course of its history. Ephesians chapter 1 is intended to bless the church for the course of its history and ultimately for the mission of God in our lives and ultimately in God's world. And why is this so hugely important to understand this as a blessing? To the one who is largely unfamiliar with any of the controversy or the division that may surround this passage, that may not resonate as much as it does with some of you who are familiar with the controversy. In fact, it it may be a mystery to you, like how could anybody see these things as a curse or a burden or something to argue about? And yet, sadly, sadly, because of some of the controversy, we tend to approach this passage in that way. We tend to throw out what we do not understand and, and say that cannot be, even though it may be something that is in fact biblical. So many have heard the words predestination or choosing or election. The idea of of God's choosing and declaring for Himself a a people. And some have called that an accursed doctrine. And yet, if we're going to be honest, we're going to read Ephesians 1 with, with honesty and with carefulness. We cannot at all throw it out. At best, there is a misunderstanding of them. And at worst, we reject them all together. And so this is really important to say right up front. The doctrine of God's election, which includes God's choosing and God's predestination as it is outlined here in this passage, is really here. And it is intended to be a blessing and not a curse and not a false doctrine to the church. So then, what is it that Paul is saying here? The first question. And the second question is, What does it mean? What is it that Paul is saying and what does it mean? This is how you would approach any passage of Scripture as you're studying through it. You would want to know what is the passage saying? What does it mean to the people it was written to? And then ultimately, what does it mean for us? How should we understand it today? Well, we started that last week with looking at God and His glory. The passage is rooted in God's activity, not ultimately man's activity. And it's not because that idea launches us into the passage, but rather it grounds us. It keeps us grounded as we walk through the passage. Because what Paul is trying to teach us is that salvation is primarily not only about God, but primarily it is the activity of God among people. So watch these with me. Notice here in verse 3 that God is the active agent In the gospel, he he is the one who has blessed in verse 3. He is the one who has chosen in verse 4. He is the one who is predestined in verse 5. He has lavished redemption and thereby grace and forgiveness in verses 7 and 8. It's God that made known to us and set forth his purpose in verse 9. It is God who has given an inheritance. It is God who is working everything according to His will in verse 14. 
And therefore, it will be His glory, verse 6, 12, and 14, His glory that is praised. Again, only in one place. That's verse 13. Only in one place does Paul even mention human activity. And he mentions it, that it's, that it's belief, it's repentance and belief. He mentions that trusting in Christ. But ultimately, he says that that activity is even rooted in the sealing of God. The point of the passage is to reveal that God has been the active agent, the main actor in our salvation. It was not ultimately us who saved us. It was God who saved us. And I want you to know that this is really important for a new believer as a side note. It's, it's so important for us to get our minds wrapped around this. Because think about it. Salvation for a new believer, where does it start? Salvation for a new believer who's never studied the Bible, who just comes to faith in Christ. Salvation starts at the moment of conversion. The day you decided to follow Jesus. And that is your entire experience of it. And I, and I want to make much of that. Because the reality is that, that that day when you trusted in Christ, you really decided to follow Jesus. You chose to believe the gospel. It was a conscious, responsible choice to follow Christ. You surrendered everything that you were to Him. Your life on the altar. And that was a real and responsible choice. Amen? How many of you would say, yes, I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? That's good news this morning. And so for the young believer who's just been saved, that's the condition that you understand your life in. But the emphasis in the passage and the salvation of your life did not start on the day you trusted in Jesus. It started long before that. You see, we, we tend to place all of the emphasis of our salvation on a decision that we made on a, on a day some number of years ago. And, and we pin our security on that. Like I remember the day I trusted in Christ. I've got it written in my Bible. I remember the date that I was baptized. I walked that aisle and, and that's the day I trusted in Christ. And nobody's going to convince me otherwise of that. And we tend to, to root all of our salvation in that. The problem the problem for the new believer is that in, in the same way in, in staking our claim to faith on that day, we've also fallen prey to a, a culture in the church of easy believism because we think that somehow that moment, that prayer, that, that signing of a card, that dunk in a pool, was, that moment was the very moment in which we were secured and, and set free from our sin. But, but God was doing something immeasurably more than that. You see, my, my salvation doesn't only depend upon the decision that I made to trust Christ. In fact, it doesn't ultimately depend upon that. It depends ultimately on what God has been doing from eternity past to eternity future. It was God who took the initiative in my life. Were it not for Christ, were it not for His grace, I would still be running headlong into sin. But praise God, by His grace and for His glory, He has chosen to save me. That is good news. Because it doesn't depend upon me. It ultimately depends upon Him. And so, I again say this same statement that I said to you last week. Paul is trying to lift our eyes and our hearts, the, the eyes and the hearts of the Ephesian believers here from that moment, from the moment in their lives where they did something. 
that they might lift their eyes and their hearts to believe the moments over hundreds of moments where God was doing something for them and thereby be stirred to worship. So, he says, God chose you. So let's, let's narrow our focus from the 14 verses to these few. Verses 3, really, and following. Really, verse 4 through verse 6. There are some words that we need to understand when it comes to our salvation. One of those is the word chose. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now again, I want to come to this without any of my own personal biases. I simply want you to see what's in the passage. The word to choose, the, way, the, the form that we see it here in this passage, the, the word is to gather. It's the idea, to gather up or to gather away from. In this case, it begins with the prefix ex or out of. And so it means to gather out of or to pick out, to choose out. That's the idea. And so when Paul says that God chose us, He, he chose us out of what? Namely, the world. He, he chose us out of the world. That's the action. It is God who chose us out of the world in Christ. So in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He, he chose us. It's the kind of thing that normally in the New Testament throughout Scripture designates an appointment to a position or to a service, a a calling, so to speak. It's the same word that's used of the disciples when God chose the twelve. Luke chapter 6 and verse 13 and Mark chapter 3 verse 13 and others. Jesus is also named the the elect one, the designated elect one in Luke chapter 9 and verse 35. The church is declared to be God's chosen people. In the same way that Israel was declared to be God's chosen people. 1 Peter 1.1 and chapter 2 and verse 9. But it's not just a title. Because in Ephesians 1 it is a verb. God chose us out of. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So then you attach to that that phrase. Before the foundation of the world. What does it mean? When did He choose? He chose beforehand. The, the, the phrase before the foundation of the world does not mean that God planned the world, put everything into place, what He was going to do, and then He saw that there was going to be sin in the world, so He made a plan for salvation. That's not at all what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is this action of God, whatever it is, however we define it, this action of God was before the very foundation of the world, before the world itself was even reality. God made it a part of His plan. And then that idea is further illustrated when He uses the word predestined. He uses it twice. Verse 5, notice it there. He predestined us for adoption to Himself. And verse 11. And it means to define or to decide beforehand. Any place the word is used, it's, it's used before creation. 
God decided or determined before creation. In fact, if you, if you take the, the prefix on the word pro, it literally expresses the fact of being prior to the realization of an object. He predestined us. Having predestined us according to the purpose of His will, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He, he outlined it, planned it, defined it, decided it beforehand. So then the next question becomes, what about the us? What does he mean by us? Who has blessed us in Christ, even even as he chose us, that we should be blameless and holy. What does he mean by us? Well, clearly, this is about believers. No question about that. He, He did not. There is no sense in which there are unbelievers that are a part of all of these blessings until they are in Christ. Can we at least come to that agreement? And you're not in Christ this morning. You don't have the blessings of God. We can also say that, that if you are in Christ this morning or if you come to, to faith in Jesus, that all the blessings of God become yours in Christ. And this is the good news of the Gospel. So what does He mean by us? Well, this is the main point of division. This is the problem where we, if, depending on how this is defined, we say we're going to just throw this out altogether it doesn't teach that, though it clearly does, or we're going to keep it. Well, the two different positions on this are, does it mean, two questions, does this mean individual election? Namely, that God has chosen specific people to save and thereby has not chosen to save others? Or does this mean corporate election, where God has chosen to save a people And there are some that would teach that Jesus being the elect one is the one in whom the elect are saved. And thereby, because Christ is elect, we are elect, those who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The two different positions on the passage. There are difficulties with both sides. And my intent this morning is not to iron out those difficulties for you. My intent is that we embrace the doctrine as what is clear in the passage that God has in fact chosen to that he has in fact chosen to save and he has chosen a people to himself that's what the passage teaches a people or people whichever way that you take it but regardless it shows God's initiative in saving so some of you would say well what about all of the verses in the bible that seem to say the opposite what about In Scripture where John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Doesn't that mean that there is a sense in which everybody has the opportunity to be saved? Some of you might in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, and these are just the most popular ones, say that, that the Bible says the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is, is it not the will of God that everybody should be saved? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6 through six says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And I would say to you this morning that yes, 
these verses are absolutely true. And we should believe them and teach them and preach them. And there are many passages just like them that say that there is a universal invitation to come and believe the gospel. And you need to hear me say this right now at this moment. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, the demand is upon your life. The call of God upon your life is that you repent and believe the gospel. And anyone in this room, anyone on this planet who would repent and believe the gospel, God says, will be saved. And yet, there are just as many passages that teach us, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, throughout 1 Peter, that teach us this principle, this doctrine of election. And that teach that it is true. And so, if there are passages that teach election and responsibility for decision on our part, if both of those are true, if if there is a universal invitation on the one hand to receive the gospel and a divine election on the other hand, whereby God has chosen to save some, we cannot abandon either one of them at the cost of the other one. You follow me? The Bible teaches something. We believe it. Amen? And I, as I read that passage, that's what I, what I come to. Now, some of you, before we go any further, and as I said, this is going to take us a little bit longer, so y'all just hold on for the ride. We'll, we'll get it there as quickly as we can this morning. Some of you are already saying, aha, I knew it. I knew it. Brother Jeremy's a Calvinist. I knew it the whole time. I, I knew that that's what he was preaching, and now, now, I'm, now I, can, I got proof, and I can go, go tell the world. Everybody. And I want to just write up front, by the way, some of, you, some of you, let me say this before I say, some of you know what that means. Some of you don't have a clue what that means, and you think that you do. And some of you don't have a clue what that means, and... And you're okay with that. You just want to get after the Bible. And I would say I'm in the camp with the latter group. And that is, I want to just clearly and categorically state before you this morning that I reject the label Calvinist. Ultimately, totally reject the label. Here is the label I like. Biblicist. I, I would say to you that, that it is not because I am unaware of what the labels are or what they mean. I am fully aware of that. I do not say that because I value, don't value the work of Calvin. The theology of Calvin, I, I think that there are some things that Calvin teach, many things that Calvin taught, a whole bunch of things that, that are true and that we should, we should believe, but we, we don't believe anything, by the way, as well as many others in church history. But we don't believe anything because a man said it. We believe everything because God said it. And so to reject what this many have, have called as Calvinist, you can't, you can't just put one label on a person to define what they believe unless it's a Bible label. I say all of these things because I want to get at what the text is really, really saying. 
And I want to probe your mind to remove biblically on the authority of God's Word to pull apart things that have been taught to you or that you've come to assume throughout the history of your life and you're growing up in church and ask, what does the Bible really say? Let's dismantle all that is not biblical and let's pour the Bible in there. And let's see what the Bible teaches. And I think that if we were to be honest with this text, we would at least come to the reality that we've got to wrestle with this. This one can't just be ultimately rejected. I'm going to just press this on both sides for a minute before I, I try to give you what I think are some foundational truths to what we've seen and then maybe to bring it, bring it to fullness for you in one main idea. What, what is it that Paul really wants us to get here? Beyond the details of all of it, what is he, what is he striving for? I'm going to bring you to that point and then I want to state some things to you that it is not so that we're clear. Alright, so that's before I, I give you those things, I want to just press this on both sides for a minute. There are at least two dangers to not believing the biblical concept of election. There are at least two dangers to taking the doctrine of election in one extreme or the other. They both start with an A. It's real easy. The first is spiritual arrogance. These aren't on your slides, but it's something you should write down. The first danger is spiritual arrogance. Think you know more because you get what maybe many in the church today don't understand. And, and so you, you wrestle with these things and you say that this is what the Bible teaches. And I, I just don't know how you don't see it. And, and even some who would go so far as to say that the person who doesn't get this yet or understand it yet isn't saved. I'd say, I would say to you this morning that that is nothing that comes from no other place than through spiritual arrogance to say any of those things. Must we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone? Yes, we must. But how we get there, we are all on a journey trying to figure out what God did in His eternal plan. And for any of us to think that God chose me and so I get it and have that arrogance about them, I would honestly and, and urgently call you to examine your own heart and ask what does Scripture say to me and to my pride. The other side of it is God isn't fair. Like God couldn't choose anybody. This doctrine of election couldn't be true because that would be unfair. Like God would let some be saved and not others saved. And I want to just caution you there. And again, I'm playing devil's advocate in some ways because I want, to, I want you to ask what the Bible says, not what's fair. Here's, here's why that's a problem. That's a problem because that kind of objection begins with man in mind, not with God in mind. Our salvation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, begins with God in mind. And if we begin there, don't miss this, it is not fair just in that sense, in the way we measure it, that God would save anybody. The fact that God would save anybody is a testament not to what we deserve, but to His grace. And so it is rightly deserved that all of us would be condemned forever. And God has been so incredibly gracious and merciful. The other side of this, not just spiritual arrogance, but spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. Say, my choice doesn't matter. Right? There's, there's, 
there's no point in choosing because God's ultimately got this thing laid out. And, and even to take that further, someone would say, well, why would we even go and do evangelism? Why would we tell anybody about Jesus? But the Bible calls us to tell people about Jesus. And the Bible teaches that our choices do matter, even though God has, ha- God has chosen before the foundation of the world. Both of these things are held in tension. And we've got to be okay with that. So it does matter. In fact, it matters tremendously, eternally, what we do with our lives. And so, what must we understand? And, and with the brevity of time, here's some things that we really need to understand about what election is. Some things I think that we unavoidably come to in the text. Number one, God's election is eternal. God's election is eternal. Can't, can't get away from that. When we read about election, we read about God's choosing, His predestination, otherwise wrapped up in one big picture as election, you've got to go, okay, well, it was eternal. Because it says before the foundation of the world. And the word predestined means to plan out beforehand. Whether you take that to be corporate, individual, that's, that's something between you and the Lord. But at the end of the day, you've got to admit that something was going on before the day that I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And by the way, that's not a, bro- a problem. That's not a burden. That's a blessing. That God was already doing something already before I chose, before I trusted in Christ. It is eternal. Secondly, God's election is unconditional. It is unconditional. And I use that word not in a systematic theology format. Use that word in what's said in the text. Notice that we are chosen in Him. That is, in Christ. Not because there was something good in us, not because God saw something in a few people and said, these people, you know, they've got something that's, that's salvageable. I can, I can take this and do something with it in their life. It's not at all what God said. We're chosen in Him, through Jesus Christ, He says, according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. There was nothing in us for which God chose us but His unconditional choice. It is unconditional. Third, God's election is purposeful. It is purposeful. He chose us for a purpose. Notice why. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. And we could unpack that for an entire message. The reality is we were chosen not just to be chosen because, again, that we would land in some gracious position before God only, but we've been given position and mission that we would live holy and blameless in the world. It's what we've been called to. So God didn't choose you to just simply sit around and do nothing and enjoy His goodness. He chose you to proclaim His goodness to the ends of the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God, so should we declare the glory of God. Holy, blameless before Him. And number four, God's election is relational. It is relational. Paul says, in love... He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. Right? So we, we are predestined to a relationship with God through Christ. It's good news this morning. We get to know God because of what God was doing before we were ever born. So God's election is eternal, unconditional, purposeful, relational. What does all that mean? How do we put it together? I, I, think, I think this is what Paul was after. And this is what is such good news to us this morning. 
it was God's sovereign and eternal plan and initiative that brought you to salvation. It was ultimately God's sovereign and in total control, bringing all things to the, according to the counsel of His will, sovereign control and eternal. It happened. It's been there from the beginning. God didn't create a backup plan to save you. It wasn't a contingency plan. It wasn't a life vest or a lifeboat at the end of the day. God had one major plan. That was by His plan and through His initiative, Him acting on your life and on your heart, drawing you by His Spirit, calling you to salvation. That's why you came. For the new believer, that is an incredible reality that you come to. To know that, that man, I, I, I just... I didn't know how I was going to make it, and then, and then somehow I just was in the right place in the right time, and I got saved, and that just, it all worked out by chance, praise God. That's not as worship driving as I, in, in my own responsible, conscious choice, I said, I want Jesus, and only to know that the whole time it was Jesus pursuing me. And not me chasing him. There's a story in the New Testament about leaving the 99. Jesus goes after one sheep. The statements in the Gospels about no one being able to snatch them from his hand as sheep hear his voice. And, and we have good faith in this this morning. That Christ, when he saves, that he does it completely. And that we who are saved are secure in Him. We're coming to that in a couple of weeks. But it is God who brought me to salvation and not any work of my own. We wouldn't be complete. And this, by the way, is just skimming the surface and flying again. But we wouldn't be complete if you didn't hear me say what election does not mean. What it doesn't mean specifically for us and how we live our lives every day. So I want you to hear these, and I, I, again, I, I want it to be crystal clear. Five different things at least that this does not mean. Number one, and they'll go brighter on the screen. Number one, God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility for his own choices. Just because God is sovereign, listen to me, just because God is sovereign does not mean you can blame Him for your sin, for the consequences of that sin, or ultimately for your lack of salvation. Your salvation in that sense must begin with a decision to follow Jesus. You are responsible for your choices. And if you choose to reject Jesus, it will not be God's fault in the end. He will hold you accountable. And so it does not mean that man is not responsible for our choices. And that should bring a level of ownership of this to you. Because we will stand before God and we will answer for the way that we lived our lives. Secondly, God's sovereignty does not silence the Bible's universal command to repent and believe the gospel. 
You, you don't say, well, I must not be of the elect, and so I, I don't need to hear this. This invitation is not for me. The demand of the gospel is in the same words that Peter used. The command is on all men everywhere to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. So if you don't know Jesus, it's not to sit around, woe is me, and say God didn't choose me. But at the end of the day, the demand on your life is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because anyone who would trust and believe the gospel will be saved. Third, God's sovereignty does not preclude the believer's responsibility to make disciples. Many have taken it in this direction and said, well, since God has chosen and since I can't do anything to change that, well, I must not need to tell anybody about Jesus because ultimately they're going to be saved anyway. And I want to tell you that that is foolishness and it is an excuse to disobey a holy God. And God will hold you accountable for that. If you choose not to... Tell others about Jesus, not to tell others about Jesus, then you fall into this category of taking sovereignty to the extreme. I just I want to say one further thing before I name these last two. And that is we, we may we may say we may say that, that we're not as Southern Baptists that, that we we don't believe in that Calvinistic predestination election stuff. I'll just caution you on this, on this point. Let me, let me say this, and then to this point. This is the Baptist faith and message. Anybody ever read it? Anybody? If you've read it, you know number five in the Baptist faith and message says God's purpose of grace. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. That's your Baptist faith and message. And what we tend to do is say, no, we don't want anything to do with that Calvinistic stuff. But I want you to know something this morning, that there are Calvinistic churches within our convention that are far more evangelistic than most of our churches today. Many of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that are baptizing the most people, that are most faithful to evangelism, are also Calvinistic churches. And it is a dangerous thing when we think that, the, that if you believe that Calvinism stuff, that somehow you don't do evangelism anymore, and yet it's many of our churches who don't believe the Calvinism that are not doing evangelism. I'm not telling you I'm in that camp. I'm just telling you. We've got to be careful. By the way, maybe just as a side note, and there's so much to be said here. I told you I was going to go long this morning. There's so much to be said, but just as a side note, you need to understand that there's going to be Calvinists in heaven. And so let's not come to the place that we grow to hate these kind of things. Number four, God's sovereignty does not license spiritual arrogance or apathy, as we just read. Just because you find yourself to be one of the chosen of God does not mean, does not mean that you have any reason to boast. In fact, 
one who takes these doctrines even to their extreme, if they're consistent, would have to say, it's not of me, it's of God, so I don't have any reason to boast anyway. And so we've got to be guarded. And number five, God's sovereignty does not exclude anyone. God's sovereignty does not exclude anyone who would repent of their sins and believe the gospel. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for that this morning? That all who would come thirsty, come buy bread and buy wine for no money. You, you don't have anything to offer God. And yet he says, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will, I will give you life. You can drink from the living water and you will never thirst again. Paul said, if, if anyone confesses with his mouth, believes in his heart, this gospel that Jesus died for them and, and God raised him from the dead. Anyone that believes that and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repents of their sin will be saved. There is a universal opportunity for anyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ if you would believe. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning because some of you may find yourself in that position. You say, Pastor, today, I don't, I don't know what happened before I was born. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what happened before the world was created. I've been trying to figure all that out. But you know, there's something bigger than me. Something greater. And if you're telling me that God has been working for me since all the way at the beginning, and that He's going to be working for me all the way through to the end, today... Today I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today I want to follow Him with my life. And I, I want to just urge you, if that's you this morning, in just a few moments, though walking an aisle and saying a prayer and being baptized doesn't save you, it is an expression of your commitment to Christ today. Your decision to follow Him. And there is so much more to see. Oh, so much more. It's immeasurably, immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. But today, you need to give all that you know of you, all that you know of Christ. Today, you need to be saved. Others of you in this room, I don't know what your response to election or the biblical idea of it has been. But I do know this. That even these things that are so far above our understanding. God wants to reveal to us that we might be to the praise of His glory. And so I want to urge you today that you fall on your face, be it at this altar where you're at, maybe when you get home today, that you fall on your face in gratitude that God has done a thing for you that you could never quantify, you could never imagine, and yet He's done it by His grace. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, this altar is going to be open. I want to invite you to stand with me. If you need to come and pray, maybe there's other decisions that need to be made in this room. Maybe you want to join this church or be a part of what God's doing here. Maybe you've just never followed the Lord in baptism. Maybe today you want to be saved. Whatever the case is, you step out of where you're standing in just a few moments after I pray and you come. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You that You are sovereign. And I pray that despite many different views on this biblical truth that you would unite the hearts of your people together to be reminded that it is you who saves and you who is drawing us to yourself 
And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.